Well, please be seated. And as you do, please join me in turning to Exodus chapter 5. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 5 and chapter 6 this morning. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Someone would love to walk a Bible over to you. Have you ever had those seasons, maybe those days, weeks, months, where things go from bad to worse? Um, I can think of many illustrations of this in my life. One, one stood out as I was thinking about it. Uh, my wife and I invited uh, some friends over, and they came over, and instantly I knew this is going to be one of those nights. They walked in, and my dog, who had just had surgery that that day, where I took away any hope or dreams she had of ever having children, and the dog just peed all over me right as they walked in. So I went and got changed, and then we went outside. We were hanging out, and we just thought, oh yeah, our kids, my, my kids can just go play, and we'll just have a really great time where we'll share stories, learn about each other's lives, share testimonies, those sorts of things. And yet the kids, they were just nuts. It was like I injected them with sugar or something. <laughs> at one point, I'm not kidding you, at one point I looked out in the yard, and my two-year-old son took down his pants, took off his diaper, and was peeing on a tree. I don't even know if you discipline for that. It gets worse, like all things. Eventually, I'm sitting there, and I realize that I have a hole in my shorts. And it's one of those things where I then looked at my wife, and I tried to have a whole conversation with just a look. You guys who are married, you know what you do. You just look like, what do I do? Because this hole, it wasn't just a small hole. It was a big hole in the crotchal area. And they were sitting in front, like right across from me, right? Anyways, things always come in threes, don't they, right? But we all know that feeling where things go from bad to worse to worse. You remember that kid's story, Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? Have you ever had those, those weeks, those, those seasons where you're like, that is autobiographical? Many times it's not funny, is it? Right? You, you, you just space on that work meeting, and then you have that shame, that embarrassment of just not showing up, and then you, you, you say the dreaded phrase, well, it couldn't get any worse. Oh, never say that phrase, right? It could always get worse, and so often it does. So, so what do you do when things in your life just go from bad to worse? Or it's like wave after wave of adversity. What do you do? Uh, Someone once said that adversity introduces a man to himself. Sort of true. But I think more than that, what our text is going to tell us is that adversity actually introduces God to each of us. Now, that's not a message that's particularly popular. Right? You're not going to find that on Instagram. But it is true of our text today that in the midst of adversity, when things in God's people's lives go from bad to worse, it is in that context in which God most intimately makes himself known to his people. 
So what do we do when things go in our lives from bad to worse? When you're already stressed out and then another anxious thing just gets thrown on your plate. What do God's people do in the midst of that? Well, today we have an answer and it's going to be in the big idea. So when life goes from bad to worse, we need God's word. We need God's redeemer. So turn with me to chapter five, verse one. We're going to read all of chapter five. And this really is a a story of things going from bad to worse. Verse one. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has said, has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people of, and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them on the men, and they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout the land of Egypt and gathered stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily tasks each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your tasks of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is is in your people. But he said, this is Pharaoh, you are idle, you are idle. This is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily tasks each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them and they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, Why have you done all this evil to the people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Do you see how there's sort of a a domino effect that it just gets worse 
and worse for God's people. So there in verse 5, if you remember at the end of chapter 4, right, uh, Moses has this wonderful uh, moment with God. He, He meets God. He says, you're going to be my deliverer. You're going to go to Pharaoh. The people are going to believe you. And so he goes. And at the end of chapter 4, there's this wonderful welcome with the leaders of Israel. And they are like, yes, we're going to do this. We're for you. Moses, go to Pharaoh. Preach this good news. And then they commend Moses to go do this work with Aaron as his helper. Verse 1, Moses does this. He, he, he preaches this, this, this message to Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't believe it, does he? Pharaoh says, I don't even know who your God is. You say that God himself is the one who who, who declared this? Well, I don't know who he is. And more or less, Pharaoh is a bit paranoid and says, I just think it's because you're idle. You're lazy, right? You you just want to go out because you don't want to work hard. And so in response... Not only does he say no to, to Moses and Aaron, but then starting in verse 4, he, he, he gathers kind of the, the foremen, the taskmasters, those um, who are sort of supervisors of this brick-making factory and says, no longer are they going to be given straw. They got to go get that for themselves. Straw was a little bit like rebarb is for concrete, right? It, it provided strength. And so they would put it in there so that when they put the clay bricks in the sun, it wouldn't crack, it wouldn't break, and it would be stronger. And so they were at first given that straw to make those bricks no longer. Now they have to make the same amount of bricks, but at the same time they need to go out into the fields, find wherever they can enough straw to make the amount of bricks that they needed to make. They're beaten because it is a fool's errand, right? There is no way that they can make as many bricks as they used to be able to make. So these these foremen, these supervisors, they go to Pharaoh and they just beg him. Say, you've got to give us straw. We're trying to do all we can. We're trying to make you bricks. We're not trying to complain, but please, just give us straw. And Pharaoh once again says, you're just lazy. You're lazy. No, I'm not giving it to you. And then starting at verse 20, you see actually God's people turning on Moses and Aaron themselves, right? And saying, yeah, we thought this was a good idea. We we, we thought this is great that we were going to kind of be led out of Egypt. We, We loved the message, but this message has only brought us hardship. And so they turn on Moses and Aaron. And then it ends... In verse 22, with Moses then turning to the Lord and asking three questions. Basically, he's saying, Lord, why have you done this? Then he asks, why did you send me to these people? And then he asks, why haven't you done anything to accomplish the very thing that you said you were going to accomplish? Why have you done this? Why haven't you shown up? And why did you send me to these people in the first place? Moses ends in chapter 5 quite discouraged, right? Moses is that preacher, right? He's he's a preacher who's sent to Pharaoh. He's sent to God's people and then to Pharaoh to preach this amazing message of God's deliverance. And he shows up, he preaches this message, and first Pharaoh rejects it, and then God's people reject it. 
So Moses is like that preacher on Monday morning, right? He, he put everything into that text, everything into that sermon, and everyone thought it wasn't helpful at all. Have you ever felt like Moses? Discouraged like Moses? Right? You showed up to that small group or that discipleship relationship or you were leading that Bible study or maybe just that, that you were praying for your kids or leading a family worship, whatever it is. And you worked hard. You tried to preach the gospel into your children's lives, your, your spouse's lives, uh, the youth's lives, the children's in the ministry. You, you did everything right. You got the text right. You Googled it. You made sure you did a great word study. You did everything right, and it just fell on deaf ears. You ever felt that discouragement? Doing everything right, and yet it all just turns on you? That's Moses' experience. He did everything that God told him to do. He stood up to Pharaoh, spoke God's word to Pharaoh's life, and yet here he is at the end, and they're at a worse place than they were starting in verse 1. Because sometimes in life, things get worse before they get better. That's sometimes kind of the, the gospel in our evangelistic conversations is, is sold as a, oh, if you become a Christian, everything will go right in your life. Well, this is actually probably much more of the paradigm. And sometimes things go worse before they go better, before they get better. And that's Moses' experience. He is discouraged. He did everything right, and yet it's as if it didn't even matter. So what do you do in the midst of this sort of discouragement? What do you need? Well, we find two answers starting in chapter 6. We really need God's word. So look with me in chapter 6. We'll read the first, um, we'll read the first nine verses. But the Lord said to Moses, Now, now, you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name is the Lord and I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you from an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I give you to you, as, uh, to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. We'll stop there. 
really, the, the word that stands out, starting in verse 1, is the word now. Now. My son uh, played Little League baseball in the spring and in the summer. And in the spring, it was coach pitch. So his, his coach would do everything in his power to pitch it to him from the mound, but place the ball perfectly so he could hit it. And then, because of my son's age, he moved not from coach pitch, but for, from machine pitch. So now it's a machine that is pitching in, and that's, you know, it, the ball goes faster, and it's not exactly at the perfect place for, you know, these little eight-year-olds to hit it. And so my son was pretty good at hitting the baseball when the coach would throw it. But, but then it was hilarious to see these kids kind of transition from coach pitch to machine pitch. But what's interesting is that my son actually didn't have a hard problem at all. Uh, he, he would just hit the ball, and he was one of the only kids who kept hitting the ball in these games on his team. And in one sense, I was like, this is wonderful, right? You know, I had that, like, fatherly pride, was like, my son has handled this transition wonderfully. And that is until pretty much the last game of the season. And my son got up to bat, strike one, strike two, strike three. He strikes out. And I thought, well, it happens, right? Gets up the next time, strikes out again. Third time, strikes out. Last at bat, pretty much the last game that I'm going to watch, and he strikes out a fourth time. And at that point, my son is beside himself. And he's not sitting with his team. His head is hanged low. He's crying. And I instantly think, now, right? Now is that teachable moment. Now is the moment to actually talk to my son about baseball and what it is to develop into a young man, right? That's the power of adversity. Now. And that's what God was doing in chapter 5. Finally, now. Now he is going to manifest himself in a unique way that he hadn't up to this point. And in verse 1 he says, I, I, I'm going to, I, I'm going to, I, now you shall, verse 1 says, now you shall see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. We're, we're going to see that, so I'm not going to ruin it for you, okay? Some of you haven't seen the movie. It doesn't go well for Pharaoh. But he says, I am going to judge Pharaoh. I'm coming after Pharaoh. Pharaoh is that long line of serpent-like kings. And God says, I am going to judge the serpent-like king Pharaoh. And then in verse 2, uh, all the way to verse 8, God kind of preaches a sermon. It, it's wonderful. It's a three point sermon. You see it in the tenses. He talks about the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense, right? This is why Baptists preach three-point sermons right here. God did it here. And so he says, look at what I did in the past. I set up this covenant, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in verse 5, he says, I, I present tense, I hear your groanings. And then he starts talking about all that he will do. Now, in verse 2, you see that it says, And God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. And then if you go down to verse 8, we see it again. I am the Lord. 
So, so God is saying, in the midst of this adversity, in the midst of things getting from bad to worse, I am going to display who I am. And if you're wondering who I am, I am the Lord. And he's bracketing this sermon with saying, everything in the middle is going to explain what it means that I am the Lord. So, what does it mean that God here is self-declaring that he is the Lord? Well, let me just point out a few things. For one, he is the covenant-keeping Lord. We see that in verse 4. We see that again in verse um, 5. He, he made a covenant to Abraham. That's, that's the covenant that he is talking about in Genesis chapter 15. God came to Moses and said, I am going to... I'm, I'm going to have a relationship with you. I, I, you're going to be my people. I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to give you a land, have this special relationship. But it's interesting because as it relates to covenants, when covenants would happen, you had always a, a more powerful person and a weaker person. And what would happen in a covenant is the weaker person would, the, the most severity of that covenant would fall on the weaker person, right? Because they're the ones who are most likely to actually fail the covenant. But if you read chapter 15 of, of Genesis, something quite wonderful happens. Moses uh, falls asleep, right? God gives him some melatonin and he falls asleep. And it's at that time where there's, there's, there's uh, uh, Moses before this, he actually took an animal and split it apart. Because basically saying that if I break this covenant, this is what's going to happen to me. This is the severity of this covenant. And Moses, or sorry, and Abraham should be the one who, excuse me, Abraham should be the one who walks through that, but that's not what Genesis 15 tells us. Abraham falls asleep, and God's the one who walks through that, meaning this covenant is based on God's keeping it. God is that covenant-keeping God. He established his covenant way back in Genesis 15, and part of that covenant is, was that God's people would be for 400 years in a land that was not their own, but then God would then deliver them to a land that was theirs. And God says, I am that God. I am that God who gave that covenant, and I am that God who bound that covenant in my own life. My, my own character is at stake. And if you have any curiosity if God will deliver on that covenant, you, you'll notice if you count it up, it says, I will, seven times in this sermon. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. God is basically saying, I will and I completely will fulfill my promises to deliver you. He is the covenant-keeping God. But there is a particular thing that he says. He, he says, I am the Lord, but I did not make something known to you in the past, but I'm making it known to you, which is really interesting. What is it that he is making himself known? It's verse 6. Verse 6 says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and with great acts of judgment. But before this, God's people knew God in many ways. But now they're going to know God as a redeemer. 
Now, uh, when we think of redeeming, that, that kind of biblical word, we think of it in terms of slavery, and, and, and in some ways the context is, is, is right there in front of us, right? That, that when someone is enslaved, someone will come and purchase the freedom of that slave. But there's more that's going on here. That word, I will redeem, it really literally means I will act as, God's saying this, I will act as the kinsman redeemer. And if you know anything about kinsman and redeemer, it's the person closest to that individual, closest to the family. They are the kinsman redeemer. The people of Israel, there in verse 6, that, that people, the ESV translated, but that's sons of Israel. And then if you go back to chapter 5, that's one of the first times God calls his people sons, firstborn sons. God is saying that he's going to be a fatherly redeemer of Israel as firstborn sons. The firstborns had a lot of privileges. And he's saying Israel is that firstborn son of God. And he will act as a kinsman and redeem them. Which makes sense. Because in many ways, God's people had not yet known God as a redeemer. It was only when they were enslaved that they then could experience God in this aspect of his character as redeemer. Had they not been enslaved, had they not gone through this adversity, had they not cried out to God, had they not been enslaved down in Egypt, they would have never known God as the one who would redeem them and deliver them out of Egypt. Maybe they would have just thought, we're just special to God. Or maybe there's something unique in in us that makes us special to God. But here it's pretty clear. No, no, no. This is just an act of God's mercy and grace. You know, it's, it's one thing to talk about God's character, and we, we do that, right? God is the sustainer. God is the provider. God is our comfort. God is our rest, our refuge. We can list all of these sort of attributes of God. And it's one thing to, to be able to define them with words, but isn't it, isn't it a whole other thing to actually experience it? Right? It's that old um, uh, Puritan illustration that it's one thing to, to say that honey is sweet. Right? You, you could say that. Oh, it's a whole other thing to actually taste that honey is sweet. And so what, what God is saying to Moses here is that you could write God is Redeemer and get that right on the test. But now, they're going to experience what that actually feels like. And so all of this adversity, all of this hardship and suffering was a mechanism for God to declare who he was in his redeeming character. Now, isn't that how it works for us too? Right? Uh, When you are just anxious and need rest, It's only in the context of that that you really can experience what it means that God is our refuge, right? Or or if you've never needed God to provide for you, maybe financially, it's harder to know what God is when God says, I will provide for every need. But if you've woken up and you looked at your bank account or you look next month and you're like, I don't know how this is going to work. 
and then God shows up, then you're like, yes, I know experientially, I've tasted and seen what it's like when God provides for me like he provides for the sparrows and the birds of the air. We could list all of the attributes of God and talk about how it's not just enough to say that God is this, but so often God displays his character to us, not when things are going great, but actually in the midst of our adversity. Right? We get this wrong. We say things like, oh, God manifests himself in our prosperity. Right? We show up at small group and we say, I applied for this job. I got the job. God is good. No, that God is good for getting the job. But the other truth, maybe the more powerful truth is, you show up into your small group and say, I applied for the job, I didn't get the job. And now in the midst of this adversity, I've, I've realized that my hope was in this job and not in God. But now I know my hope is in God and God alone. That's what's going on here. God is speaking into Moses and saying, There is an aspect of my character that you've not experienced firsthand. God's people had not known him as redeemer, and they're about to. It's wonderful. God himself preaches to Moses in his discouragement. And then Moses is like, this is fantastic. He goes to God's people there in verse 8. He preaches the best verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, expositional sermon of his entire life to God's people, right? And revival breaks out. It doesn't, does it? Look at verse 9. This is almost the shock of the text. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. There's his great sermon. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. God's people had the spiritual wind knocked out of them. They were so discouraged, so enslaved, so beaten down, that even Moses' message from God himself wasn't enough to encourage them. And at this point, and I know God's people are going to sin later and disobey. I don't think there's really a hint that, that they're like sinning here. I think this is talking about a real life experiences that God's people can be so beaten down, so discouraged that it sometimes can be even hard to encounter God's message to us. I mean, isn't that the Job-like experience? I'm, my assumption is that, that that's, that's some of us here. Or we've gone through those sorts of experiences where their suffering is so great that we almost just need someone to sit in our suffering. We're not ready yet to hear God's word of hope and encouragement. But that's how this ends. Moses is excited, my guess is. He's just met with God. God has spoken to him, said, I am going to show this character, this, this unique character in redemptive history. I'm going to be a redeemer. He preaches it, but God's people are just so broken. Which then leads us to the next thing we need when things get, go from bad to worse. Not only do we need God's word, which is what Moses needed. We also need God's redeemer. Look, look at verse 10. 
Verse 10, so, so the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, skip down to verse 26. These are, uh, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out of the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. There's that language again. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I said to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Now, we'll get to what's in the middle here because that's very odd. But, but if you, you see twice, basically, Moses goes to the Lord in light of his people and saying, the people won't listen to me? Obviously, Pharaoh won't listen to me. And, and twice, Moses says, I am of uncircumcised lips. Now, actually, a lot of people are curious what that means. But, but at minimum, we know that Moses doesn't think he's a good speaker, right? And so Moses' reply in light of all of this is, God, you've got the wrong man. I am too weak. And it's interesting. Did you notice God's reply? He doesn't even say, okay, Moses, I'll help you this time. He doesn't, he doesn't say anything like this. He just brushes aside all of Moses' concerns. He says, I don't really care. And it says, verse 13, but he charged him. He gave him a command. He goes, do it. We're not talking about this. This isn't a debate. Do it. And then in verse 14, we have a genealogy. Now that's weird, okay? Just imagine it breaks up this whole narrative. Imagine if I was telling you a story and then all of a sudden I said, okay, I want to tell you about my great-great-grandfather and I started just going into a genealogy. It's weird. Well, why in the world is this genealogy here? Which is... I think, a very important interpretive uh, question that anyone should be asking when any genealogy comes to us is, why in the world is it here? Because so often it's very important. Now, this is interesting for many reasons, but one of them is this is not a complete genealogy. Did you, if, if you look at it, it starts with Reuben, firstborn of Israel. Then it goes to Simeon, and then it goes to Levi, and then it just stays with Levi. And so what this is, starting in verse 14 to verse 25, is a genealogy basically that starts and then just kind of ends with Moses and Aaron. It is a genealogy of Moses and Aaron from the tribe of Levi. And if you read this and if you diagrammed it, it basically would be saying to us that Moses and Aaron come as the thirdborn of Israel, you know, fourth son of this, second son of this, twice removed from nobody, nobody's. That's Moses and Aaron. They, they are nobodies. There's nothing special about their lineage. There's nothing special, special about how they flow in the genealogy of God's people. They're just sort of nobodies. They are as unimpressive as you can be in God's people. And God says, that's who I'm going to use. That is who I'm going to use to redeem God's 
people. Now, in one sense, the application could be, oh, God uses unimpressive people all the time, which is true. I don't think that's what's going on here. Moses was actually the deliverer here. Moses delivered God's people. Moses was God's instrument to deliver his people. And that's not our role anymore. Moses had that unique role. But, but it's not my job to redeem anyone. It's not my job to deliver anyone. But it was Moses' job. So the application, though, it could be maybe second or th- thirdly that, that God uses sort of unimpressive people. The real point is that God's deliverer, here Moses, that the point is that he is unimpressive. But, but he's pointing to the ultimately unimpressive deliverer, Jesus Christ. Right? J- Jesus Christ grew up in Nowheresville. He had no political power. He was as unimpressive as you could be. Didn't come from a great family line in that sense. Then he lived, died. Just think about it. He, he dies with like a hundred followers. I mean, talk to any church planning guru, they'd say Jesus was a failure. Couldn't even amass more than 200 followers in his lifetime. He was as unimpressive. He lived, died, hung out with tax collectors and thieves. He died crucified, he was about as unimpressive as you could be, and yet he was the ultimate deliverer of God's people. He led the ultimate exodus, didn't he? Not not, not exodus out of Egypt, but a far greater exodus, an exodus out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He, He led the charge from our enslavement to sin, And led us into freedom from our sin. He didn't judge us in the process. He actually judged God the Father, judged his son in order to accomplish this. You see, as we read the book of Exodus, and as we look at God's people in adversity, going from bad to worse, not only do they need God to speak and to display his character, but But we need a particular aspect of God's character. We need God to be displayed in his manifold character. And and where do we see God most clearly on display? It's through Jesus Christ. When Jesus himself says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Seven times Jesus himself says, I am. Here we see God saying, I will. And now Jesus comes out and said, I am. I am, I am the Lord. As we read our Bibles, it's not enough to just get the answers right. It's it's not enough to even know Greek and Hebrew. We need more than that. We need to go from the text and encounter in every book of the Bible. We need to have an encounter with Jesus Christ himself. That's how Jesus read his Bible. There's a sloppy way to do this, but there is a way in which as we engage in God's word, we realize, oh, I I might not be enslaved in Egypt, but, but I have my own enslavements, my own particular addictions, 
my own sin that I need delivering from. And it's only in the context of those that we actually meet God himself and meet him in this particularly wonderful way as a redeemer. It's, it's hard to go and kind of march our way in season that feels like one thing after another, one adversity after another. It could be hard. Some of the women are actually going using a curriculum called Simeon Trust, which has been a blessing to our, our, our congregation. We, we've gone, some of the men and women have gone to various conferences and workshops. But, but that ministry is actually dedicated to a real-life man named Charles Simeon. Puritan, 18th century. He was a man who grew up in a wealthy context, though it wasn't a Christian context. He, he, he was the son of a wealthy lawyer. And he grew up bright intelligence, went to Cambridge, and then at Cambridge as freshman, he became a Christian in a wonderful way. God called him to himself. And then having called him to himself, he then called him into the ministry, which is his own story. And initially he had all this amazing fruit, right? He, he was the it guy. And early on in his 20s, he became the rector of Trinity Church at Cambridge. And you'd think like, oh, this is going to be one of those things, right? The stars align. Everything's going to be easy for this guy because it's been easy thus far. Oh, you wouldn't be farther from the truth. He shows up and they allow him to preach the morning sermon, but he's not, not allowed to preach the Sunday evening service. They hire another guy. They're like, we don't trust you for that. For 10 years, they won't let him preach the Sunday evening uh, sermon. So, so after 10 years, he finally says, fine, Okay, the Sunday evening service is at 10. I'm going to lead one at 7 and lead that. So, so he shows up. He advertises it. But the church janitor locks the doors so that no one can do it. For, for years, there was a sort of a growing ministry. And so uh, he would then, because it was kind of a smaller sanctuary, he would, at his own cost, he, would, he purchased and rented chairs, put them in the aisles for people to come. And the janitor again took those chairs threw them outside in the courtyard. For years he was slandered. I'm talking decades. People would throw bricks through the window to try to discourage him from preaching. I mean, I can't, I lose my, my, my track of thinking when someone sneezes. Imagine if a brick came through that window and you get a little bit of the sense of Simeon. And yet, decade after decade, for 50 years, he stayed at Trinity and kept preaching and raised up a generation of preachers as he faithfully preached God's word. I mean, he had, he, it went from bad to worse in his ministry. And yet he was faithful. And the question is how? And if you read any of his biography, you'd realize that in many ways, it was similar to our text. He just kept on swimming in God's word trusting in God's promises, hearing from God himself and encountering Jesus. And he basically said he wouldn't trade his ministry in the world because in all of his adversity, in all of his suffering, in all of his hardship, he said, I met a Jesus that was so intimate and so glorious and so beautiful that I wouldn't exchange it for all the easy roads or pastorates in a second. That's the legacy of Charles Simeon. May it be so 
of our church as well. Let's pray. God, we, um, we know that there are seasons, maybe we're in it right now, where it's hard. Sometimes it's just hard to get to church on Sunday. Sometimes it's just hard to get out of bed. Lord, we pray that you would meet us in those hardships. Lord, we pray that you'd bind up our wounds. Lord, we pray that we would know you as, as redeemer, as provider, as our comfort, as our rest, our refuge as our all-sufficient, sovereign Lord. Lord, we pray that, that we would, in our community, that one of the ways in which we can give testimony to the truthfulness of your word and the particular truthfulness of the gospel is how we go through adversity. May we testify to the power of the gospel in our lives as we go through hardships. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.